Kaiju FM, your independent podcast network, whatever your interest. Come find your niche. Hey guys, and welcome to this week's episode of The Prestige, a podcast about films by film lovers for film lovers. Each week we pick a film, we discuss that film, we review that film, and we sort of talk around some of the ideas and themes it throws up, some of the sort of inspirations it inspires in us. We're currently heading towards the end of season three, and we've been going month by month looking at different directors. And so currently in our last director, our last month, and we're looking at Alfred Hitchcock. So there's more on that later when uh, we start talking about the movie. But as always, we open the show with what else we've been watching, the other things we've kind of partaken in. Now, it's been a couple of weeks since our last episode, so hopefully Sam will have something good to share with us. Sam, what have you been watching? Uh, nothing. Well, <laughs> no, I, I say that somewhat flippantly, because my recommendation this week is a book. And it's, it's my uh, USP to recommend books on this, on this podcast. And... This book is film-related. It's by Richard Owadi. It's called The Grip of Film. And it's written from the perspective of Owadi himself, who's a writer, director, actor, uh, and also a character that he's created, who is uh, it's just a bit of a joke at the expense of incredibly misogynistic, um, racist sort of old-fashioned Hollywood stereotypes. Um, it, it's and Essentially, it's just one long joke. Um, it's quite quickly readable. It's a um, page-turning sort of um, step through the career. The, the thoughts on film of this fictional, um, monstrous entity that Owadi's created. Um, and... If you if you don't like like the joke or you don't get on with Richard Iwadi, then it won't be for you. But I do like him, and I thought the joke was quite fun, and it didn't go on for too long, and it was just a quite enjoyable read. So that's my my recommendation for this week is the Grip of Film by Gordy Lussieu, who's the uh, fictional. Writer and Richard Iwadi. Weirdly enough, I've been watching some of uh, Iwadi himself recently, watching, uh, catching up on Garth Marenghi's uh, Dark Place, which is a, a brilliant comedy. But that's not one time this week. So this week I have watched, and it's a film I don't think Sam will join me in watching, probably. Um, I've caught up with the 2012 postmodernist deconstruction of the filmmaking process, Resident Evil Retribution. <laughs> Right, okay. See, Sam Sam laughs. Sam laughs because I'm kind of making a joke, but I'm also quite serious. Okay. I watched this film the other night, um, and it is, it's a zombie, you know, slasher film. But at this point, the film's, it's film four or five in the, in the series. And so they're quite insular and they're quite uh, interwoven different textual stories. But this film really starts digging into the idea of. The movie is very self-referential. We talk about other movies and how all the locations in other movies pop up in this as virtual reality locations. Um, and it's weirdly metatextual about itself. And like, I was genuinely shocked watching it, thinking, 
like you could read this as just a hacker slasher kind of zombie movie, but there really is some depth in decisions they've made and choices they've made with the with the story they're telling. About they are kind of also talking about the trilogy and kind of and talking about the the, the series moves up to that point. So it was like it was a strange one because I wasn't expecting much. I was like going to it, you know thinking to be a, a bit of silly you know zombie fun, but it has some you know if you read it the right way, it has some depths and uh, yeah, it it really kind of has stuck with me in that effect. Right. Also, lots of zombies and death and shooting and yeah. stuff. You know, it's very very silly as well as being all this. From the ridiculous to the sublime, or the other way around. We are continuing, as Rob mentioned earlier, with our Alfred Hitchcock series, which has reached um, one of his, I suppose, his middle period films, um, towards the beginning of that stage of his career. It's the 1948 film Rope. I just think we ought to wait till after you graduate. I don't. It's only a month. Janet, a month. Please. Sorry. I personally consider us engaged as of now. Congratulations. David, no. Look, you can say yes in a taxi. I have a 2.30 appointment I'm in your... staying right here. Oh, afraid you'll say yes. So, Robe sees us approach the height of his career, based around a dinner party held in the very apartment in which murder has just been committed. It stars James Stewart as the schoolmaster whose theoretical ideas about superior beings have been taken to their logical yet kind of gruesome conclusion by his erstwhile pupils, John Dahl and Farley Granger. It is... Um, visually innovative um, that's something that we will touch on um, and it comes across as very much of a as n- not a three-hander um, but of a stage play with very defined protagonists so um, Rob, what were your thoughts on the film? It was very strange, I think this film I must say I haven't seen Rope before this watch through, but I was kind of going into it aware of its conceit aware of the uh, as, as Sam says the way it's shot um, I was aware of that in terms of its legacy in filmmaking and I was expecting it to be another, another one of the films we talk about being important but not good and I could see us talking a lot about the style of the movie and the technicalities of how it was made but I was really drawn in by it mm. I think the film does some really interesting things with its narrative form as well as its technical form um, and I think there's some great Performances, especially from the, I mean, they say there are three main hands to the movie: um, the two murderers and their old teacher. And the th- interplay there, and the way the movie kind of ratchets up the tension. It just it starts. It starts obviously. I mean, not it starts with the murder. You see visually clearly the murder. You know, there's no illusions as who's dead and who's good and who's bad and who's the like. You know that shot one, shot one, who the murderer is. And it's from there. It's ratcheted up. It's cranked up. The sort of the tension through as as things happen, and and particularly it's led by one of the uh, murderers who clearly has a desire to kind of not only be smarter but have everyone know he's smart, I suppose. Mm. But it just ratchets up and ratchets and ratchets and ratchets, and and you're not you're not sure is it going to go one way? Is it going to go like are other people in danger? Are they in danger? And it back and forth, and it has that real you know, it has that thing that often comes with theatre where it's got to live and die by the words and the script and the acting. Because theatre can't have 
all of the bells and whistles sometimes the film has. Mm. The film has visual effects, it has cutting tricks, it has a lot more tools in its toolbox than the theatre does. Or different tools, at least. And so it has to live and die by these words and formulas. And that really came through for me. And you do, you get invested in these characters. In the same way we talked last week about um, The Pleasure Garden and how there's no real characters to it. Um, and they're just kind of, kind of ciphers for other people. Here, you really get the feeling of there being characters and the three, the three main people who all kind of agree on some ethical things, how the end of those goals are. Um, so, yeah, I was very much on board with it. Um, what about you? Yeah, I I really like this film. As you said, I kind of well, my my approach to it was pretty similar to you. Actually, I hadn't seen it before, but I kind of knew about its quote unquote importance, and I kind of knew what to expect from it visually. But I was, I mean, it sounds over the top about a um not not a. a big budget Hollywood blockbuster but I was really blown away by this film by just how full of suspense and how neat the as you said the dialogue was and the acting and the interplay of the characters I thought it was it was brilliant and I I particularly like that the fact that it is one long shot and it's, it's obvious where the, where the cuts come, that the cuts don't have to be there except for, I suppose, for practical reasons. I mean, you, you wouldn't want to reshoot the whole film, so you've, you've got to have cuts. But the, the cuts didn't feel intrusive, and you kind of, it kind of felt like it was all one shot, and I enjoyed that. I enjoyed that feeling that, as you get with sort of a tightly plotted stage play, that it kind of all feels like one long act, even if it's cut mm-hmm. up into scenes. It's always there. It's always present. You're always in the the sort of in the, in the in this case in in the horror of what's going on. So yeah, I've really enjoyed it. It was really good. It helps that I've always liked Jimmy Stewart. I mean, I, I would watch him do anything. He's brilliant. I, I'm right there with you. He's, I mean, I mean, he talked a lot about how I haven't maybe got the history of classic Hollywood that uh, other people have, but uh, Jimmy Stewart certainly is one who has stood out for me, and I'm sure that will rear its head later in our in our recommendations. And I think you've touched on something there that I wanted to kind of highlight that this this, as you say, it's listeners. If you haven't seen the movie, a you should see the movie, but b it's all in one take. It's all it's all done in. He says in commas, one take. Back in the forties, obviously they couldn't do you couldn't do a one take movie, um, so it's a, a bunch of ten minute takes, cleverly hid with some pans to black and that kind of thing, um, because back then ten minutes is kind of the limit of, of a film reel, um, which is why you've kind of got it in this in this format. But I think one of the things where this is where the narrative and the technical really marry up is that because it's one take, there's nowhere to hide, there's nowhere for the murderers to hide. So, whereas, like I said, editing can hide things, a cut, a, cut, a fade to black, a scene change can hide things from the audience. You're, you're literally, you're not seeing things hmm. by the nature of an editing process. You're, you are missing stuff. Whereas this, you're not. You, you, everything is right there. And it, it really adds to that kind of, not awkward, but that really kind of intense tension that movie projects. Because you know you aren't cutting away. You aren't, you aren't going to fade to black and pick it up the next morning. 
whatever's happening is happening now in real time in front of you and everything matters mm, that's i mean that's here the the experience of the the tension of the scene is something that's transferred to you watching it you know exactly that you you are just as caught up in it as anyone involved is mm. and the this sort of the the creation of the film itself is I'm saying the, the structure of the film itself it, it is sort of designed to evoke that feeling in you. Yeah, and it, it, it just it, it really it works. And whereas, shall we say, um, we we watched we watched this early in the season, Birdman, a much more recent film, um, similar similar done in one take that I didn't get on well with at all. Really, if, if we recall the episode, there the sort of the technical prowess of the one take felt. I had no force. The film didn't need it. It didn't add to the story it was telling. Mm. Um, whereas here, like, like a, a version of this without without that um, conceit really would not work as well. No, no. Um, because it's about it's about every line. It's about every every word of dialogue and how it sets one person off or other person to end it. It's about that flow and how the the, the pompous smug of one murderer versus the panic of the other. And how those build into play. I mean, it, the only version of this that works is that way. Mm. It's, this is a film about intensity. And it's made in such an intense way. Mm. And it, it's designed for everyone watching it to feel exactly what is being felt on the screen. It's, it's brilliant. I love this film. And I think you know, in, the, in the film itself, in the, in the sort of the text of the film... Um, the murderers are putting on a show like they, they, they're throwing a, ha- a party that Arthur done the murder to kind of prove how perfect their murder was mm. to prove how, how, how well, how smart they are, how good they are. Like they can make the worst decision really, you know, to literally have the body in the room while they're having a party around it. It's to prove how smart they are and that's their undoing. Um, and, and, and their, their desire to show off how they are. Um, but as, as I say, that, that this, this marrying of the form and both the form and the function in many words, mm. um, just kind of builds that. And, and you do, it's intensity is the word that's, you do end up being weirdly drawn in by the, the main leads. And especially, I can't remember, look at, look at the name here. Um, I believe it was, uh, it's Philip, I think is the, um, the more confident one. No, um, Brandon's Brand the confident one. Brand, Brandon's the more confident one. Um, and he has a, a real steely intensity to him. Mm. Um, and Philip, who is much more shaken by their murdered act. And every other bit part in that, you know, Kenneth, Janet, um, David's parents, or sister-in-law, and obviously Rupert, played by Jimmy Stewart. And like each one, every line is catching them out. But then you've got the other, like... For me personally, I felt a swung. Like part of me wanted them to be found out. Obviously, they're murderers. They're horrible people. And as the movie goes on, you clearly realise that particularly Brandon is a horrible person. Mm. Um, his views on everyone else is, is horrible. But at the same time, you kind of don't want them found out. Because every time it gets close to being found out, you're like, oh, is this the moment? Is this when they get found yeah. out? Um, and you do you don't empathise with them, but you you buy in to that panic mm. um and that's why i think having having philip be the the a very panicked conspirator like if they were just overly cocky and confident you wouldn't get the same reaction to it mm. yeah it i was thinking about that 
there's I mean the, the camera moves quite a lot I and mean, it's, it's it sounds stupid to say because it's a one long shot but there is there there is a lot of movement um, and while there's a conversation going on between Brandon and the others um, the camera just pans and then stops to um, a scene of the housekeeper tidying away and mm. the others are talking off screen and you can just, just see the housekeeper very methodically clearing everything off and she's obviously about to lift up the the um, chest and put the books in and it and it was that that moment of yeah I I know these are horrible people I kind of do want them to be found out but at the same time don't do it like someone's got to stop her opening the chest and I, yeah. I was sort of drawn in by that it's just that it's it's, it's kind of like watching something about to fall over mm. it's like oh, oh don't and you really feel that edge of like is it gonna happen no is it gonna happen no and like weirdly at the end like at the end spoilers guys like Jimmy Stewart lifts the lid on the bookcase and obviously sees the body but part of me was like what if they've snuck the body out yes. <laughs> I genuinely like even though like in the movie you've not left that room that there's no way they could have got the body out without like, seeing it part of me because I'm so used to the narrative language of edited film was expecting a twist with a reveal, mm. um, and it didn't come. The film doesn't doesn't have a twist. It doesn't have a reveal at the end. It just has you know the consequences of action, um, and and the inevitable consequence of action. And you know that how the the very first action of the movie builds, and you get the consequences at the end of it. I suppose the, uh, I kind of would would quite like that if there'd been a twist at the end that way, and then. If thinking about it, if there had been a twist at the end, I don't think this would have been as good a film. I think I would no, felt no, a I little bit cheated by it because it, you're so right that there is an initial action. This whole film is about the consequences of that action. It builds up and builds up, and I would feel a little bit cheated if there weren't the payoff at the end. But part of me, looking at Jimmy Stewart's face, looking in the box, did want them to have somehow spirited the body away. So I think the film does some great work to, not great work, but the film establishes through the actions of the, of the two leads. Like they are, especially, especially Brandon is a horrible person. Um, and especially his views on the right to murder. Um, and in the same way that Jimmy Stewart has the same view, but he has the Jimmy Stewart charm mm. that you kind of don't think of him as the same person is Brandon and Brandon's taken those views into action and killed somebody and he believes he's smart than everyone else he believes he's the you know he's the superior so he believes he can do all these things like have the body and move it around um because it's he, he thinks you know, in many ways it, it was weird watching probably the, the opening when they move the dinner party over the body it almost felt like something like Science of Lambs it felt kind of weirdly serial killerish Mm. You know, these days we 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 are often prone to think of you know these kind of ritualistic murders um, and the ritualism rituals around murder. Um, it feels like you know it feels weirdly serial killer esque. Um, it feels weirdly horror infused in a way that um, an otherwise sort of not even a murder mystery, but a, a dinner party murder might be. And I think this is we look at Hitchcock as a whole, touch back to last week's movie and his other films, like there's often an, an element of, of horror 
to him. Even when he's doing, you know, crime dramas or thrillers, there's a real element of horror to what he does. Mm. Um, and I think we'll touch more on that in, in coming episodes in the coming weeks. Um, but I, I really felt that this week that Brandon, Brandon was particularly, he's this, he's a horror, horror character. He is a, a merciless sociopath um, who killed because he thought he could not out of jealousy or any kind of, but just a feeling of moral superiority to those that he killed. Mm. Yeah. I thought, I mean, it sounds ridiculous to say that Jimmy Schertz was the best performance in the film. It, it obviously is. It's James Stewart. But I thought that speech at the end, when you have this realisation that his erstwhile pupils have gone through with something and have done something that he'd always viewed as sort of a bit of a game with words. And it... I mean, it's, it's a horrible thing to have a game about but as long as you keep it as a game as, and he kept it as well, not a, game, a thought experiment um, I mean he, he could mm. say he believed in it but you, you know he didn't really and it was that realisation that they believe in this they've gone through with this oh god what have I done and it's that yeah, that that oh god, what have I done? Moment without, I mean, he hasn't really done anything, but he's just created the conditions for the doing to occur. It's that he's not. It's the, but it's, it's what happens to take a philosophical argument and make it real. And at what point does someone's ethics and the, the idea of a philosophy butt up against reality? And the idea of an oligarchy, I suppose, and a meritocracy, and I know what a meritocracy taken to its logical end conclusion is this, you know. Um, but how do you define merit? And, and, and you know, Brandon is trying to me who decides who's above and who's below. And it's it's that kind of you know what happens when you take it into the real world. And Jimmy Stewart has that realization of like all his philosophical discussions. Are, are bunk because what was the was the impact with the real world then they're just horrible mm. it's i mean his, his ideas is it's it's really like a like a philosophy seminar when you have that the, that that conversation with david's dad and it becomes the when they talk about nietzsche and talk about the uber mentioned that it, it does feel very much like oh i suppose a young man a university student but it feels very much like this idea of pursuing a philosophical idea. And then you have David's dad, who is the voice of reality, saying, you cannot believe that because this is what reality is. And no one can decide. Exactly. Mm. So, Sam, do you have any recommendations for us? I do. I have, before I get into recommendations, actually, I've got a, an honourable mention for um, one... I mean, it won't surprise you to know that I'm going to mention a book, um, but it's a fictional treatment of just this idea of um, a teacher and pupils and a philosophical argument and something that goes wrong and young people and a killing. And it's brilliant. It's Donna Tart, The Secret History, which I would recommend to pretty much anyone actually it's a great book very readable book um i've read it and it's brilliant yes there you go and rob doesn't read anything no honestly i read literally nothing <laughs> food labels <laughs> subtitles screw it i was recommended that back when i was 
17, 18, because one of my friends worked at Waterstones. Um, and it's brilliant. It's genuinely one of the best books I've read in my entire life. Um, mm. The first full movie script I ever wrote, I mean, of course, was literally that ripped off. And I didn't realise until like a year later, mm. like, oh no, this is just a movie. I've just written that. I've written that. Um, but no, it's, it's brilliant. <laughs> my film recommendations this week um, 1944, it's a Frank Capra film, Arsenic and Old Lace which has, similarly, it has um, a very polite, upstanding, gentlemanly type who's thrust into an arena that he doesn't really understand until it's too late. It's Cary Grant, and I suppose it's this idea of murder, but done in a much more comic vein. It's Cary Grant and his um, lovely... Old, old aunts who turn out to be serial killers and I saw it on stage and it's it's another one that is sort of tightly plotted and works really well as a play uh, it's very enjoyable I was thinking Old Lace Brilliant. and my second animation I couldn't get away without mentioning a James Stewart film it is the 1950 film Harvey which I just love it, 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 possibly again because I love him but it, it has some very interesting things to say about what is reality and do we have the right to judge what other people should be um, so Harvey from 1950 and I'll sing Old Lace from a bit earlier 1944 excellent excellent I, I've gone also down the the uh, Stuart route and uh, I've pulled together his one one of my favorite films of his probably my favorite film of his yeah, definitely I did toy with Harvey um but I kind of thought you know what Sam's doing Harvey I I'd, I'd have bet money on that one and I I would have won um mainly cuz when we were teenagers Sam maybe with Harvey um, and that's how I I first discovered Harvey was via Sam so I've gone for his other probably iconic role, and that's his 1946 film, It's a Wonderful Life. Uh, this is a film that I rave about every year at Christmas. I love it. It is everything a Christmas movie should be to me. It is it is brilliant. Um, it needs no introduction. It needs no championing. But, uh, yeah, it's if you want to see the range of Stuart... Um, looking at that rope, what he is in this, but also what he is in, in the different versions of It's Wonderful Life. Um, and you'll see the charm, the wit, and also the desperation that he can bring to a role. I think that's that's worth shouting about. My second recommendation, I felt it was remiss to not mention sort of the technical prowess here, and it's one take nature. And what else I could recommend in that similar vein? Now, in my experience, one take movies don't tend to be great. Um, this would probably be the exception to the rule. So I haven't pulled one of those together. But there have been several mentionable and memorable long shots in movies, long takes that are, you know, all, all one take, um, often done for real. Um, and other days of digital, you can do, do a lot more. Um, so I'm recommending the 1995 movie Strange Days. Um, this is a Catherine Bigelow film. We didn't cover it on our Bigelow month, um, but we really should have, because it's brilliant. It's set in 1999, and it's kind of in a very small genre that I've kind of titled pre-apocalypse. Um, so it's building towards something happening, some sort of end-of-the-world catharsis moment, in this case, the millennium. And the story, if you haven't 
Scenic Guides is about you can have you can jack into memories, you can experience their memories, and you experience these memories in the first person seeing it, and it opens with this electric long take of, of a robbery in which you are one of the robbers um, and you go through it all it's a really long slick shake uh, as a person and it introduces you to that world it has the immediacy and the long take nature of it because they are running jumping cars in and out and stuff it's a technical masterpiece um, so it's a tenuous link um, but I thought the technical skills here in Rope you can draw a line from that to these kind of movies so yeah 1995's Strange Days well uh Hitchcock season continues next week. Um, next f- film is the 1958 classic Vertigo. We'll be talking about that next week. Till then, you can come and chat to both of us about films and all the podcast at Prestige Podcast on Twitter. You can find just me at Rob Gudgey. And just me at Life underscore Academic. As I mentioned earlier, guys, we are heading to the end of our season four. And we would like to end with something special. And this year we are doing a playoff. We are pulling together the top 32 films that we have watched over our, our tenure on the show. Um, and we are going to vote them off. We're going to put pitch things together one by one and see who comes out triumphant. As it stands, we've got our top 30 films, but we thought we'd throw our last two slots, our play-in slots, open to you guys. So if you want to check out kaiju.fm forward slash bracket, you can find there there is a poll in which you pull together maybe another 20 movies that we think probably might be touching towards the, uh, the may go into that last place. Please vote. The top two movies um, that get most votes will be entered into our bracket as as our two play-in slots from listeners. So please go check it out. Um, Till then, guys, we will see you next week.